Hello, and welcome to this series of the World Built Environment Forum podcast, where we explore some of the key issues around the built and natural environment with leading experts. I'm Sybil Taunton, Head of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at RICS, and I am joined by Jonathan Wetzel, Director and Senior Partner at McKinsey Global Institute. We will be discussing diversity in cities and why diversity equals access. So we're going to get started in this conversation, Jonathan, welcome. And I'd like to start with the basics. How do you define diversity in regard to cities? Sybil, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks for the time and the opportunity to chat about what is, of course, my favorite topic, uh, cities, and uh, and in particular, this idea of diversity. In many ways, diversity is intrinsic to the notion of a city. The whole idea is essentially to bring people together uh, from different backgrounds and to have them mix and match and see what happens. So diversity can be, I think, very much in the eye, if you want, in the eye of a beholder. But objectively speaking, it's it's a anything that allows us to say that we are distinct individuals, that we stand as ourselves individually, and that we are then importantly brought together to interact. So uh, I think of diversity, you could say, uh, from the standard sort of three aspects, economic diversity, environmental diversity, social diversity, all of these things matter. And when I say environment, I add that in because I think that our cities do interact with all types of creatures. And if we don't have a diverse ecosystem, quite literally, we are going to run the risk of not having an ecosystem. We will be a monoculture. <laughs> so environmental diversity does does matter as well. Social diversity, of course, matters because that is who we are. We, uh, we relish the idea of hybrid vigor, <laughs> that bringing together different backgrounds allows us to compare and contrast, to uh, learn from each other and ultimately to create something that is greater than the sum of its parts, which is very much what a city is. And finally, economic diversity. Uh, again, we are not there to simply stand on the laurels of the past and to relish some sort of historic successes and to essentially only uh, hang out with people who have been successful in the past. But this is ultimately, I think, a a, a longitudinal uh, diversity of uh, people who will be successful in the future, people who have chosen economically to do different things because they are investing in other aspects of the humanity, whether it's social or environmental. So all of which allows us to, again, learn from each other. And we know from research, we know from practice that a vibrant economy is an economy that has many different parts to it. It has a, it has an aspiring part to it. It has a it has a, an investing part to it. It has a harvesting part to it. And it has to be all of those things because otherwise, again, we have a monoculture. So diversity in that sense for me is the differences that bring us together. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, and now with that, generally speaking, how inclusive would you say that cities are in terms of providing adequate housing, education, and health for all of their citizens? I would, of course, I, I'm an optimist. And so I, I, it's, I try to couch my answers in that vein. Uh, but to be fair, uh, there's a long way to go. I mean, I think that, first of all, cities are works in progress. So what we can, I can say, it's a lot better than it used to be. And that is measured, if you will, by median performance, not by averages, but by medians in the sense of, does the median household have a better that better shelter? Does the median household live longer? Does the median household 
is more uh, literate. Uh, and by those measures across the vast majority of media, the media of all cities, uh, things are distinctly better than they were 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Take your Take your medium-term forecast. Now, any given year on year or decade on decade, of course, uh, there can be steps backwards and steps forward. But I, I tend to believe that our narrative, our narrative of cities is a narrative of progress. And where there are gaps, that becomes an opportunity, an opportunity for us to change the system that allows us to, in turn, appeal to that median and sort of make things better. I'm going to zero in on on the gaps there then. Where where cities are falling short or do fall short, are there specific areas and specific populations that you're seeing impacted most? Of course. I mean, I think it's uh, all that the that the gaps almost by definition affect the have-nots. Uh is the, the 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 disenfranchised, the the people who have not been historically allowed the access to the benefits of a city. Again, a city for me is a meta-technology. It's a technology of technologies. It's a, it's a way of engineering the progress of, the, of humanity. And if you're not part of that, that's then one is left out and one is left behind. So those are the, those are the populations, is the, the excluded. Uh, and, and let's be a little more specific because moving into what gaps we're talking about, I tend to focus on three things. Uh, maybe three plus one, if uh, being my sort of more sort of uh, Chinese version of myself. So the three plus one is housing, education, and healthcare. Those are the three, and the one is income. So you know, either you have those things or we do not. And if we do not, then you are not participating in the city. Uh, either we have housing, which allows us a place which we need every 24 hours to sleep, <laughs> uh, or we do not. Either we have the education that allows us to meaningfully participate in, in our workplaces, or we do not. And, uh, either we have the health care that allows us to go to sleep comfortable in the fact that if something horrible happens in our vicinity, we will be taken care of, or we do not. Uh, and finally, either we have the ability to earn a livelihood or we do not, you know, and those things define a city and cities that do not allow those things to not give people access to those things. Those are cities that do not work very well. Those are cities that ultimately decline. Thank you. Um, you mentioned uh, some of this earlier in breaking out the different definitions of economic versus social aspects of diversity. Um, and an article you wrote recently, you also talk about this. Um, and viewing citizens as assets rather than costs. Can you go cover some of that here and how viewing citizens as assets rather than costs can shape provisions of services and outcomes? Great. Well, it's, I mean, I, I, I use the analogy advisedly because sometimes people, you know, object to the idea of uh, individuals being viewed as economic units. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, of course, they're far more than that. I mean, people are people. I mean, they, they have economic value and participate in the economy, but they're also simply aspects of who we are. We don't choose to necessarily represent all of that with a dollar figure. And of course, they also are parts of the environment. Uh, they, they affect uh, everything, the grass, the trees, the, the, the cats. Um, so the, uh, I think that, you know, in, from that context, uh, what I'm meaning is that if we choose to invest in our societies, then, and we choose to think past the 
fairly arbitrary short-term model which says year on year we should be budgeting for zero <laughs> cash flow, you know, well then we have the we open up the potential uh, for growth. Um, because our if we do not do that, we're well, we are limited. We cannot literally don't have the money <laughs> uh, to come back to zero every year. And we're saying everybody should be back to zero every year should be self-funding. Well, I'm afraid there are many people that cannot do that. In fact, most people cannot do that. So by investing in people, what we mean is by taking a longer view of their potential and to to invest in their education. If you invest in in someone's education, clearly they're not going to pay it back for you that year. (laughs) Maybe not in the next five years, but is it a good idea? Well, generally speaking, it seems to go along with higher growth rates or more sustained and more sustainable ones. Similarly speaking, either we have investing in a hospital. Now, most ho- hospital administrators will tell you that this is not something you should expect a near-term payback from. Uh, so that by definition, almost like these goods, these social goods, and I use that word carefully because it's not to say that there shouldn't, there isn't an economic component. Of course, there is, uh, but they are inherently investments. And by investing in those things, we make a better city. Uh, I just want to add one last thing that uh, you use the word citizen. I have a concern about that word. Uh, in many environments, citizens is a value laden phrase. Uh, it accrues to individuals who happen to have a particular set of documents which may or may not reflect the reality of their contributions and participations in society. So in my average Chinese city, if I go and ask people, how you know, do you, does your health social insurance cover your population? And they will say yes. And then I ask them, how many people does it cover? And they will say X million, 10 million, yeah, 2 million, 3 million. And they say, but I noticed that the total number of people and living in your city is closer to six million, <laughs> and they said, "What?" I, and they said, "Well, those are not citizens; those are guest workers; those are migrants." Well, I, I'm afraid that that is playing with language. That you know, either your public good covers the people that are in the city, as in working, living, even visiting, <laughs> um, studying, or it does not. And we should be honest with ourselves that our health of our cities depends on how well we treat everybody, not just those who happen to have the right set of documents. That is a perfect example of why words matter. So, yeah, thank you for covering that. That was fantastic. Can you give some examples of cities that are maybe considered exemplars of inclusion and accessibility and some that may be on the opposite end of that spectrum? I think it's hard to say that there's, first of all, there's no perfect city. And uh, I I remember doing a a piece of research on smart cities and asking the question, which is the smartest city in the world? And it was unfortunately a trick question because there there was no smartest city. On a one to 10 scale, nobody got above a seven. So I think that the, uh, the idea for me on exemplars is all about trajectory. Is like the city that is improving itself fastest and best. That's the exemplar city. So it's all about pace, trajectory, direction. And again, cities are, are themselves. Paris doesn't want to be London. It wants to be a better Paris. 
Beijing doesn't want to be Shanghai. It wants to be a better Beijing. So in that context of saying which cities are the ones that are improving themselves the fastest, I think we can find examples at every level of, of development. So uh, the city that is, in, is coming out of a civil war and that manages to rehouse its population, you know, uh, that is an amazing city. You know, and I would be going beyond a bit my my knowledge to sort of sort of pull out those particular examples. But OK, I'll, I'll go there. I mean, I think if we look at Kigali, you know, and what it's been able to do that post the genocide. I mean, I just think that is an a staggering, you know, the encouraging sort of kind of context. And then, you know, of course, at other ends of the spectrum, if we look at the advanced so-called markets, so the ones, let's just say, that have a very significant balance sheet, and the, 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 those, well, some of them allow for more, made more progress on reducing the externalities of the system. We could phrase it that way, saying nobody really intends to wake up in the morning and say, today, I would like to increase the level of people experiencing homelessness in my city. It, it does happen as a byproduct of the system that's in place. And so for cities that have wealth, those uh, negative byproducts, those externalities are the things to focus on. And there, I think it's fair to say that some of the European cities particularly have done a pretty good job of mitigating those externalities. In the housing space, typically people talk about Vienna, they talk about Helsinki. And so there, there are certainly lessons to be learned. But I, I would come back to the idea that there is no perfect city, that we all have our challenges, and that the benchmarking, the comparison, it's always the start of a conversation. It's not the conclusion. It's the place where we look at it, and then immediately the administration says, but we're different. And it's a yes, of course you are. But you know why one should at least acknowledge that there are solutions and that they can provide useful input into each and every city's particular challenge. Thank you for that. Can you speak to some initiatives that that maybe more forward thinking or inclusive cities are putting into place, and what have the results been from those initiatives? Well, I, I would love to, I could easily tee off on that for you know, hours. Uh, let's, I'll try to confine myself to things that I know more about. Um, as I said, I, I tend to focus on the three plus one housing, education, healthcare, and income. Uh, and I, I genuinely, and again, for different levels of, or different contexts, the, the equation is a bit different. But, uh, you know, on the income side, it is, it is just to be blunt. It is hard to beat China. I mean, it is very hard to sort of overlook the hundreds of millions of people who have improved the, their condition by becoming part of the urban economy. And it has been done over a historically unprecedented period to have that kind of scale achieved. Of course, China does have unprecedented scale, but the amazing thing. So when I came to Shanghai, when I moved there in the early 90s, the income per capita median, uh, it was in the neighborhood of four, five, six thousand dollars $6,000, somewhere in there. And the population was somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 million, 11, 12 million. Today, 24 million income per capita, over 25,000. That is never happened before, never at that scale. So we'll say, what did they do? 
<laughs> well, they grew. That was a secret. First of all, they literally grew, as in they expanded the land area of the city administratively. So by, I think, 4X. Uh, so there was currency, if you will. And then they governed it. They governed it to use that currency, that land, to attract and grow industry and services. And then moved along. And over time, they made it a nice place to live, which also included making some tough choices. There are many industries which no longer live in Shanghai because the government has said, no, we don't want to have any ferro alloy manganese smelters here anymore. So I think this on the economic side of the income side, the, the moral of the story is a little bit about be bold, think big, grow to achieve that aspiration um, for all the population. Otherwise, you will you know, sort of fall short. So I think there's on the economic side, that would be an example of growth. And I think those are there are there are similar examples in many other parts of the world, uh, including, you know, New York. <laughs> so, uh, oh, you know, and, you know, I would love to go on, but uh, let's uh, let's turn on the cost side in terms of uh, housing. And for example, which is an area that I spent a lot of my time on. And I think this is something of a challenge because our system for housing essentially generates inequality as a byproduct of the financial system, that our model for storing value is essentially realistic. 70% of the global balance sheet is in the form of wealth held in real estate, land and buildings. And 90% of that is held by households. So this is really a story about us, how we choose to store value. And one price does not clear two markets. So if there are, if there is an investor and there is someone seeking shelter and they both want one particular piece of land, the investor will win. <laughs> they will take that land. So it is a byproduct of the fact that we use a commodity land, buildings, which we also need for shelter in order to store value. And as a result, either we separate those markets, we create two prices essentially, or we live with the reality that we're going to have unequal access to shelter. And at the extreme, that leads us to homelessness. So how to deal with this? Some cities have innovated by essentially separating the markets, trying to create a separate space for affordable housing. I might point out Germany and the Netherlands post-war, where to do that, one has to set up an entire ecosystem, starting with finance, to be able to enable the long-term rental of affordable housing and to do so over decades. And that was a post-war innovation to set up those kinds of financial institutions to in turn fund the development or retrofit of, of housing. And it's a genuine innovation, but systemic innovation. And I should note that system is very much under pressure right now. And so innovation has a half-life. You do have to keep doing it. One can also look at technology as an unlock for this. In a sense, technology allows us to do more with less. And so whether we're talking about 
trying to scale modular, which has big challenges because of the lack of assured demand, uh, or simply rethinking the space and design and adjacencies to enable micro units, uh, sharing, obviously, or the technology of infrastructure to become more uh, effective and efficient, to give people the information they need to actually make better choices about how they choose to use their water or power or what have you. Everything helps. Uh, and cities that do support the development and the use of these kinds of technologies, I think, have done better over time. So, yeah, a few examples there uh, of different ways that we can we can look at cities and say, are you keeping up, basically? <laughs> are we innovating systemically? Are we using technology to its maximum extent? And I think ultimately, are we giving our city participants the information they need to make good choices? I'm a firm believer that people will make good choices if they're given the information they need. And a lot of times this comes back, comes down to that kind of market failure that simply put, people haven't got the ideas that they need in order to have a better life. Thank you. Those are all really great points. I think if we could do a, a parting thought on this conversation, I think you summarized a lot there. There are a lot of really great takeaways. Through all of this discussion, if you could leave a parting thought for all of our built and natural environment professionals, what would it be in terms of, of this discussion on, on how we convince cities and how we convince these built and natural environment professionals that spending money on people and populations is an investment. My thought is that this should not be viewed as an either or, that either we have spending on people or we have spending on the economy or something like that. It's, it's always never entirely clear to me what the alternative to spend things on is. Yeah, because you know, if the alternative is to put the money in the bank and just hope that something happens to it, well, that is essentially starving the economy. So capitalism, to use the economic framework, requires growth to survive. If you do not grow, you are in a shrinking economy, and then you have overcapacity, and your margins collapse, and you're generally speaking worse off. Growth requires us to have more participation in the economy. There has to be a capacity to grow. That is what we mean by investment. So it, either we are enabling more people to participate in the economy, or we are not. And if we are not, we are shrinking. And if we are shrinking, it is bad for business. So that, I think, is the, is, is the challenge to sort of see one's way through. If this is a financing problem, fine. Let us go out and think about what is the right financing approach. Because the answer then is not to spend less, but to find a way in which that the returns to that investment are more visible and that they can potentially be front-loaded. And there will be people who are interested in having a more longer-term return. In the field of infrastructure, we refer to it as the infrastructure conundrum. Tens of trillions of dollars of infrastructure needed tens of trillions of dollars of investment capital for the long term, and never the twain shall meet. So how does one marry those pools of capital with those needs? 
That is the job of the built environment professional in the real estate and infrastructure space, is to translate those needs into an investable product and one which sees the value of creating that built environment. I mean, simply put, there must and there is always an economic impact of everything. Then it is simply denying the economic realities is akin to sticking one's head in the sand and choosing not to acknowledge the social impact of the economic decision that has been made. So I think if I was to have a parting thought for the built environment professionals, it is that it is very important for them to understand the economics of their decisions and that every decision they make has an economic impact. And by if they do so, I'm pretty convinced that they will see that the inclusionary path, the path to enable participation is a far better choice than the alternative. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan Wetzel, Director and Senior Partner at McKinsey Global Institute. Please do join us for another podcast in the future. WebF episodes of the RICS podcast are published at the end of every month. You can also listen to any previous WebF podcasts that you may have missed by subscribing to the RICS podcast through your preferred provider. The World Built Environment Forum is a 365-day-a-year platform. You can find out more about the forum, access our global content, and join the community by visiting our website at www.rics.org forward slash WBEF. Finally, you can download the WebF app from the App Store or Google Play, where you can access the latest innovative global thought leadership content across the built environment. Mm -hmm.